We'll be looking at um, the first 11 verses, but we'll only be like preaching just uh, three through seven. But in order to keep the text and the context, let's look at those first 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral men, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your precious word. And as we read it, as we just sang, we wanna see you, Jesus. And in seeing you, we may be transformed to be like you. Lord, be near to us in this time. Give us wisdom and insight. Father, help me. May I have clarity of thought and may I honor you with, my, with the words and the, with the handling of your word. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you, you can be seated. I remember whenever my uh, dad, even though it's been a few years ago, I remember when my dad was teaching me to drive and one day in one of his lessons, he had taken us out and I was on, I actually, I believe I was on like 127, the old 127, and we're driving, doing about 55 miles an hour. And my dad's in my brother's F-150 pickup truck. And all of a sudden, my dad begins to swerve over onto the shoulder of the road. This is before they had rumble strips, but even if he had, he went past that and he actually got two tires that were actually onto the, the dirt and the other two tires were on the shoulder. And he's riding along like this, you know, and he goes, uh, Andy. Uh, If you ever find yourself over on the shoulder of the road or even off the road, you got to know how to get get back on the road because the last thing you want to do is to swerve the car and overcorrect and lose control in the middle of the road. And so you got to know how to kind of get it back up on the road. And that's the very thing that's happening in Ephesus. False teachers have infiltrated the church and what they're doing is they're, they're, they're causing the hearers, they're causing the church to, to kind of swerve off of the road, off of the shoulder of the road. In fact, some of them have even crashed and burned. And when I think about my own journey in, in Christ, my own growth in Christian living, I know that I've spent my time, my fair share of time on the shoulders, down in the ditches, if it will, in the ditch of prosperity gospel, in the ditch of liberal theology through the emerging church. And so I've spent my time there. 
And what we need to know is that there is a roadway, that there is a straight path. A course has already been set for us. And in fact, what Paul is probably calling into mind wouldn't be driving because they like didn't drive, right? But what he's calling into mind here would be nautical terms. What he's saying here is we have been already been given a course. We've already been given a heading. And what we must do is we must set our sails according to this heading that has been given. And what Paul is doing throughout this text is he's establishing some of the principles to help uh, keep us navigating on what is right and what is true, what is biblical and what is unbiblical, what is true versus what is false, what is, uh, ba- what is sound versus what is unsound. Now, some of you may go like, hey, what does it even matter? Like, why does it, why does it matter? Why does uh, precision in doctrine and precision in theology, why does it matter? Well, I would say this, does it matter whether you drive on the road or you drive off of the road? Does that matter? Like, that's what it matters. My, my parents say now, uh, they, you know, they're, they're snowbirds, so right now they're in clear water. And for some period of time, my dad owned a boat in clear water. And so when we'd go down, we'd take his boat out, and he'd let me, you know, we get to drive the boat and take it out. And whenever you're in the bay, so, so clear water is on the, on the Gulf side. And whenever you're in the bay, the truth is, is the water in some places, in most places, is only like four to seven feet deep. I mean, it's really, really shallow, even though you've got this vast, what looks like an ocean in the bay, but it's really, really shallow water. And they've come through and they've cut channels in. And the channels are marked by these buoys. On one side, they're green. On the other side, they're, they're red. And you have to stay within, within the channel. You got to follow the buoys, follow the markers. Because if you don't, you will run your boat aground. And that's what Paul says. Some have even made shipwreck the faith. They've ran Christianity aground. And we must be rooted in what is true, where the channel is, what is right what is sound, what is biblical, so that we don't get run aground. Now, whenever we're in these pastoral epistles, sometimes you can, as a congregation, you could go, hey, the the onus of the responsibility lies on you, pastor. Paul is preaching to Pastor Timothy, telling him, preach and teach what is sound theology. So you may be sitting there going like, hey, pastor, preach and teach what is sound theology. And I get that, and I understand that, but there's also a responsibility of the congregation. There's this responsibility of the congregation to hold the pastors and the teachers accountable. In fact, Paul says this in 2 Timothy. So in his second letter that he writes to Timothy, chapter 4, verse 2, he says this to Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. But then look, verse 3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away. Same thing, they'll swerve. They'll swerve away from listening to the truth, and they'll wander off into myths. Same thing that he's saying even in this text. But notice how how, how he presents that in that text. It's unhealthy sheep, unhealthy people, the immature that produce and platform teachers. It's not the false teachers necessarily gather for themselves congregations and crowds, but it's rather the opposite. Crowds and congregations, they gather for themselves teachers. They don't want to teach the truth, but they just want to tickle the ears. And so it's a call for you as a congregation to be discerning. And we do live in a time that we need to be discerning. 
mean, first of all is, I just have another 20 years as your pastor. So 20 years, actually 23 years. And 23 years from now, I'm going to retire and you're going to need to hire a new pastor. And I want to make sure you get someone that preaches the Bible, that doesn't hear just to tickle your ears. And so you want to just check this off and remember that. Like, hey, we need to go back and listen to this sermon because we're going to look for this in a future pastor. But not only that, there's all sorts of teaching that is so accessible to us, is there not? And during quarantine, I found myself, I found um, on Facebook something better than watching what you're liking and subscribing is Facebook Live. And so I'm reading and scrolling through Facebook Live and so many teachers are on there and I'm listening outside of kind of our echo chamber of who I normally would listen to. I'm like, hey, what's this guy down the street? What's he preaching and teaching? I'm listening to it. And oftentimes I'm going, you know what? That was one heck of a good TED talk. That was a great motivational, uh, 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 motivational talk. Uh, that that guy just gave, but it wasn't biblical. It didn't lead people to rest upon Jesus. And so we need to be discerning. We said this last week that sound doctrine, it honors God and it blesses his people. And the opposite of that is true then. Unsound doctrine dishonors God and it hurts his people. And we need to believe that and we need to know what is sound and what's, and what's not sound, what is right and what is wrong what is true and what is false. And so it's for that very reason that Paul has left Timothy in Ephesus. He says this, I'll give you one distinct purpose. It's in verse number three. As I urged you when I was going on to Macedonia, uh, that's where the Philippi is. So Paul's gone on to be with the Philippians, but he's left Timothy in Ephesus. And here's for the reason, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So he says, you're going to give them a charge. That's a military term, not a religious term. It's, it's, it's Timothy's mission is to, by, by whatever means necessary, to put a stop to the false teaching that is taking place in Ephesus. And Timothy's response to Paul's command is to simply salute and execute. And it really begs the question, though, how do we know? Like, how can you tell? How can you tell what is true and what's false? what's right and what's wrong, what's biblical and what's unbiblical. Like it's not as simple sometimes as it seems. But what we see in this text, emerging out of this text, is Paul is giving us some, some of the ways, some of the principles at stake here. It, what's happening in this text as we look about it just in these short few verses is Paul is contrasting what is unsound versus what's sound. And so I'm gonna show you what the sermon looks like. It's gonna take me 30 minutes to get through it. But here is what the sermon um, looks like. It's gonna look like this right here. Like that's the table that I put together as I was working through. And so maybe you wanna take a picture of that. Hopefully Brian will lead it up for a, a little bit and let you uh, grab a hold of it. But that's what's, that's what's emerging there. Well, that's what's at stake. That's what the difference is between unsound and sound. The first thing that Paul says is that unsound doctrine, it deviates from the standard. That's what he means when he says, charge certain people not to teach any different doctrine. But the word different doctrine in the Greek is a hybrid of words that Paul's actually coining. Paul's actually making up this word. Like sometimes I accidentally make up words, but Paul is on purpose. He's accident, I mean, he's on purpose. He's putting together and making and coining a new word. And he'll use it again throughout the uh, New Testament and some of the, and to Titus especially, he will use it. And what he's saying here by different doctrine is a teaching that deviates from the standard. And hopefully as we go through, we're gonna define what the standard is. And so if unsound doctrine deviates from the standard, then sound doctrine, it follows the standard. 
And notice what I said here. I say sound versus unsound. Not biblical versus unbiblical, even though that would be true. That unsound unsound doctrine is actually not rooted in the Bible. It's unbiblical. And And sound doctrine would be doctrine that's rooted in the Bible, and it would be biblical, but I'm not using that terminology, and here is why. It's because these false teachers are actually using the Bible. What's happening here in Ephesus isn't that the priests and the teachers from the temple of Artemis down the road have infiltrated the church, and now they're mixing together like the teachings of Diana and Artemis in with the teachings of Jesus. Like, that's not what's happening here, but what they're doing is they are they're misusing and misrepresenting and misquoting and misteaching the, the, the Bible. And you go like, well, wait a minute. They didn't have the Bible, but they did have the Bible. They had the Old Testament. And then at this point, the church has already come to understand that what the apostles are teaching is authoritative and, in, and inscribed. See it all the way back in the early church in Acts chapter 2. It says they're devoted to what? The apostles' teaching. And so they've already come to understand by the Holy Spirit that what these jokers, these, these 12, I mean, these 13 men are teaching, that it's authoritative. And it's the same as Scripture. We'll see that throughout the Bible, that whenever the New Testament refers to the Scriptures or the Bible, it's not just, just referring to the Old Testament, but they're already understanding that it applies to the apostles and what they're teaching. We need to recognize this. The reality is that Satan uses half-truths And half-truths are just as damaging to the church as full lies. Certainly, they're harder to detect. Teaching that is explicitly and overtly and recognizably anti-Bible and anti-Christ and anti-God, that's no real threat to the church, at least to a healthy church. But But the subtle teaching, the teaching which appears to be biblical, that's what's the most dangerous to healthy churches like ours. We need to be cautious of that. C.H. Spurgeon said this, that discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It is, however, knowing the difference between right and almost right. We need to be able to discern the difference. What's happening here in the church's Ephesus is they are teaching. They have an unhealthy devotion to myths and endless genealogies. They're also misusing the law, but we'll set that aside for next week, but let's think about these myths. Now, we don't know exactly what exactly would be included in these myths that they're teaching, but I don't think it's Greek mythology. I don't think, again, I don't think they're talking about Zeus and Pegasus and Hercules, 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 and Jesus. Like, they're not doing that. That's not what they're doing here. I think what they're really talking about is they're talking about Old Testament myths, Possibly even they're talking about myths that have emerged about Jesus. And whenever we look at the Apocrypha, we see some kind of mythological Jesus that shows up. For example, there's a story in one of the uh, Apocryphal writings. I don't remember which one, but it talks about Jesus as a little boy and he's playing in a mud puddle with some of his friends and they're fashioning little animals out of the mud. And Jesus makes a little dove out of, cl- out of this mud. And then all of a sudden it comes back to life and it flies away, right? That's kind of the, probably the myths that maybe they're talking about. But this kind of a mythological Jesus is true in our day as well. There's all sorts of so-called biblical, so-called Christian churches that may promulgate the mythological Jesus, the mythological Jesus of the Jehovah Witnesses or the Mormons, or that of the liberal church, the mythological Jesus that, that probably 
stanza in our culture that we know about, it would be the Jesus who, the mythological Jesus that never confronted anyone, the one that never made anyone feel uncomfortable, that never judged anyone's lifestyle, the Jesus that just accepted people just as they are, the Jesus who came to establish a community, an inclusive community, which all types of people would be embraced and no one, no matter your proclivities, would ever be excluded. Well, except for the religious, right? We've heard about that mythological Jesus. Never mind that Jesus' first sermon that he preached was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. We'll set that aside, but they built out these mythological Jesus or these myths in the Old Testament. Not only are there myths being promulgated, but then also notice there's endless genealogies. That's not to say that anything is wrong with genealogies. And we see that two of the gospel writers open up their gospel account with inspired genealogies leading us to know who Jesus is. In the Old Testament, it's full of genealogies. Those of you that are on a daily reading plan, if you started in the Old Testament, you're about to get there. Sometime mid-February, you get to the genealogies, the begats. So-and-so begat this person that begat that person, begat that person. You're like, why on earth did I ever sign up? And honestly, that's where a lot of us just lose steam in in our Bible readings, right? But what these teachers are doing is they are speculating as to the importance of these genealogies. They're using them as the thrust of their their teaching. Now, certainly biblical genealogy would have been important to the Jews. It would have been important because their heritage rests upon a genealogy. They're descendants of a person, a family, Abraham, and then Abraham's 12 sons. And so certainly that's important. And maybe what's happening because Ephesus would have been a mostly Gentile church and a Gentile culture. Maybe the Jews are using that as a form of superiority, a form of hierarchy, maybe even a form of racism within the church. And maybe with, even within the Jewish religion, like when you think about this, maybe one of them says, hey, I, you know what? I belong to the same tribe as uh, the tribe of Judah, the same one Jesus does. So that makes me more special. You've got Nimrod in your genealogy, but I got Jesus in mine. And so you can kind of understand how maybe a hierarchy was maybe emerging in that. No doubt what is happening is an unhealthy focus on the obscure over the obvious. That this is what sound teaching does. Sound teaching focuses on stewardship of the plan of God over the speculations of man. Now, these speculations are ones that they are making confidently. We saw that in the text. They're making confident assertions. So don't let a teacher's confidence in what is saying fool you. My favorite pastor preachers is a man by the name of Alistair Begg. And Alistair Begg has this saying, it's one that we've adopted, and I say it often, is our job is to keep the main thing the what? The main thing. And then what Alistair Begg does is he oftentimes follows it up with this, and the main things are the plain things. We need to know that as well, that sometimes the plain things aren't all that exciting. We have a desire in us for the mysterious, for fantasy, for the unknown, for something new, fanciful stories, speculations about numbers and events and the what ifs and all those and the how many's. And now that kind of stuff sometimes can be exciting. And I can give you hundreds of illustrations of things that I've heard. It's the same issue. Does it deviate from the clear and obvious teachings from the story of the Bible? A lot of pastors, oftentimes, they will say to you, I know that you've heard it been taught like this, but let me tell you this new thing. And here's what you do if a pastor says that nine times out of a 10. 
find a new church. Scroll off of that, hit stop on YouTube and find somebody else. Because oftentimes what they're doing is they're speculating and they're deviating. They're swerving from what is true and what has been taught. Paul says the focus of our teaching isn't in speculation, but rather it's in stewardship. Stewardship that he's using there is a, is a, it's a somewhat complex word. It's the Greek word oikonomia, all together though. Oikonomia is the word. And what it means is the put together plan. It is um, a word, oikos is the word used for household. So it makes sense. Remember, we looked at last week in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, I think verse 14, 15, somewhere around there. Paul says that the church is the household of God. And so now he's saying that there's a structure and there's a plan in place that is within the house of God. There's a way that we are to, to, to be ruled and a way that a house is to be run. In fact, when you think about, listen to this, oikonomia. Do you hear the word economy come out of that? Oikonomia. It's the same root word that we get the word economy from. We can even think of it like that. That it, it, When we think about the economy and economics, we can think about it on a macro level. That this is this very complex system that I don't really understand. And I take it you don't understand, but the whole world is all working in cooperation with this system. That's why, you know, this money's worth this much in this country and all this. So this is global macro level that is economics. But then there's also the micro level. And the micro level is you living within your means, you keeping a budget, you carrying some cash in your wallet or however it is that you do it, a check, you balancing your checkbook. So there's a macro level and there's a micro level. In the same way that Paul is understanding this idea of stewardship, he's introducing the same thing. There's a, there's a stuardship, there's a, a, a oikonomia uh, that is global, which is the gospel. It's the message that's being taught in the scriptures. Paul's saying that there's an obvious plan of God. As we read the pages of Scripture, we understand that. That as we read the Bible, a storyline is emerging, is it not? Don't make me do it again. We'll spend another year in the storyline of the Bible. I look back sometimes and I go like, there's plenty of meat left on that bone. There's a lot of text that we didn't cover, a lot of stories, so don't make me do it again. There's a storyline that emerges, is there not? We learned that. And what is that storyline? The storyline is that God created it, it was good, and man jacked it all up in our rebellion and our sin. We fell, but God put together a plan of redemption that everything in the Old Testament is pointing forward to that plan of redemption that comes as Jesus through the person and the work of Jesus. He's redeeming us. And then there is ultimately a final restoration that will take place. That's what's called the meta narrative of scriptures. The meta-narrative is being told in individual narratives all throughout. What Paul is teaching here is you and I, we've been entrusted with this message, with this storyline that is the very gospel itself. It's been entrusted to the church. And now for the micro level, you and I, our job is to take care of that, to watch over that. See, a steward is someone who takes care of something that doesn't belong to him. He watches over something on the behalf of someone else. What Paul is getting at is that very thing right there, that the gospel message, it's a treasure entrusted by God to men and women who will give an account to him on whether they managed it or dispensed it faithfully or not. And that kind of 
responsibility should come out in the preachers and the teachers that you listen to. That kind of responsibility should come out as you study the Bible, that you understand what you hold in your hands and what you're reading is holy. It doesn't belong to you. It's a word of God that's been entrusted to you, given to you, and you should painstakingly study it in order to get it right. That as stewards of the gospel, we're not free to modify the message or to teach whatever we like or dislike or whatever we think our audience wants to hear. We are under orders. Ultimately, those orders are coming from God. We're under orders to proclaim what God has revealed and nothing more. Nothing more. Sound doctrine, it sets out to teach the Bible rather than teaching from the Bible. And the difference is huge. I'm not saying every teaching that comes from the Bible is wrong. But what I'm talking about here is a pattern set up. Is this guy teaching me the Bible or is he just teaching from the Bible? I remember years ago, whenever my family began to attend the church, and that was something that my mom said to my grandfather was like, well, he's teaching from the Bible. You know, this morning he was in the book of Proverbs. This evening he's going to be in the book of Revelation. Next week he's going to be in the book of Hezekiah, right? Just whatever. It's not a book of the Bible. And I remember my grandfather says like, yeah, but is he teaching you the Bible? The difference is huge. Paul says this again in 2 Timothy chapter 2, 15. Do your best to present yourself to God. He's talking to Timothy again. As one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed. He's rightly handling the word of truth. Now listen, first of all, let me say this. Like this isn't our attempt just to pat ourselves on the back for getting it right. Like that's not why we're preaching this. We're not preaching to say like, you're so fortunate that you've got elders who want to preach and teach and teachers who want to preach and teach you the Bible. Like that's not the point. What you're seeing is you're seeing 15 years in the making. You're seeing convictions that the elders of this church held on to whenever we came together to say, what kind of church do we want to be? And so we're just, we're guarding that with the truth of scripture. We're also reminding ourselves of this very thing that, that what drives us, these are principles in place. And oftentimes people will leave this church and they'll land some other church and they'll say some other things. Like I generally try to have an exit interview with folks as I leave. I feel like I've had like 30 of those over the last year, but I usually try to have an exit interview. And these people will say, well, I was just looking for more of this. And I was just trying to look for a pastor that talked more about that. And these things of speculation, these things of fanciful stories, these things that really in the end don't mount to a hill of beans. Part of the reason why we're talking about this is so you get what we're doing here. And we're not the only ones who do it. I don't believe that. I don't feel that at all. There are faithful churches all throughout this town, more now than there maybe has ever been men in pulpits who are faithfully expositing. That's what it's called, expositing texts of scripture. We're not in any way, are we saying this to build ourselves up? But here's just the reality. Again, teaching is everywhere out there. I want you to be a discerning flock because we believe that sound doctrine, it doesn't, it doesn't, it dishonor, I mean, unsound doctrine dishonors God and it hurts his people. And look what Paul's saying here. I've got it underlined for you. There's a right way to handle the word of truth. And if there's a right way to handle the word of truth, guess what that means? Then there's a wrong way to handle the word of truth. 
Before we ever even arrive there, I think we got to begin with understanding what the Bible is. And then once we understand what it is, we have to let that determine how we use it. So here is what the Bible is. The Bible is the word of God. It is fully inspired and without error. That We use that word as inerrant. It's without error in the original manuscripts. It has been written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it is the supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct. So we can underline a few words in that if you would like. We can under, underline the word of inspiration. It's inspired. It's inerrant. Um, it has been written um, by the Holy Spirit, and it's authoritative. We can also add to that is it's sufficient. Now, here's the deal. So many preachers and teachers will agree with that in theory. They will say, yes, that's a theological statement. And they would say, yeah, I have no problem with that but that in the way that they use it, they show that they really don't believe that to be true about it. Many preachers and teachers may say that they believe that, but then they don't use it like that. So just let me give you this example. There's a guy on TV, maybe you've heard of him. He has a big smile. His name's Joel Osteen. And I just use him as an example, but Joel Osteen, he, hey, I don't know if he still does it. I know for years he used to start off Every sermon he would start off or every talk, TED talk that he gave, he would start it off with, hold up your Bibles. Everybody in the congregation would hold up their Bibles. And then he would say this little mantra. He would say, this is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I can do what it says I can do. And he said, today I will be taught the word of God. And then what he says is, okay, now he doesn't say this, but this is what they do. Now put this away. We won't need it anymore. Everybody puts it under their chairs and turns their phone off because I'm not going to read it anymore. Because if I do quote from the Bible, I'm going to misquote it and take it out of context. I'm definitely not going to teach it in an expositional way that unfolds. I'm going to treat it like it's a fortune cookie. And that's a major difference. Because of what it is, listen to this, because of what the Bible is, it determines how we use it. Not just here in the pulpit, but for you in your life. Because of what the Bible is, It determines how you use it. See, for example, I could take this saw that I'm going to try not to get tetanus from, but I could take this saw that I found in Mr. Dennis's closet, and I could ask, you know, you, hey, what is this? And we could all agree, right? What is this? This is a saw, right? But then what if I pulled out a nail and I began to try to drive this nail with a saw? You would say, hey, bro, you know what this thing is, right? But you don't know how to use it. It's obvious because it's a saw, you don't use it to drive a nail, but you use it because it's a saw to do what? To to cut things. In the same way people may say, it's a Bible, but then they don't use it like a Bible. They may say it's authoritative and it's sufficient for your lives, but then they don't use it as it's authoritative and sufficient for your lives. They think the sufficiency lies in themselves or in their stories or in some way that they can twist and distort and change up the word of God because it's not sufficient enough to the people. But because we believe this to be true about the Bible, What we're declaring is, no, it is sufficient in everything that we need in life and in godliness. We find on the pages of Scripture. That's why our aim is to preach and to teach it in its context, not to misuse it. Reminded of Spurgeon. One time Spurgeon was asked about 
his need to defend the Bible. Like Spurgeon couldn't you to defend the Bible. And Spurgeon said something like this, like the Bible doesn't need me to defend it. It doesn't need me to defend it in the same way a lion doesn't need me as a weak man to defend it. Like we just let the lion out of its cage and it will defend itself. And that's our job in our preaching and in our teaching and in our studying of the Bible. It's to let the lion out of the cage. It's to come to understand what the truths of scripture. It is exactly what Joel Osteen said. I just wish he really did believe it and rested in the sufficiency of it. it. You are what it says that you are. A sinner saved by grace, those of you in the room. You have what it says that you have. Those of you in the saved, you have eternal life. And those of you who are unsaved, you have eternal judgment and damnation. It is, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, which means you can endure under hardship and suffering and persecution. And you can do it with great joy in Jesus and hope that the end is not in this world. And it is the word of God. By God's grace, you will be taught the word of God here. We need to promote a stewardship. It says it promotes a stewardship from God that is by faith. Now that's important. I don't want to skip over that part in the text. Rather than promoting these speculations, what we're promoting, Paul says, is we're promoting the very plan of God the the organized, logical plan of God that's emerged out of Scripture, the clear plan of God of salvation. That's what we're to teach. And he says, ultimately, it's by faith. Sound teaching promotes divine accomplishment over human achievement. Sound doctrine is God-centered over man-centered. That most unsound teaching has an unhealthy focus on man and ignores God. The Bible is first about God, who he is, what he has done, and how we should respond to him and what he has done. Man-centered teaching, it focuses on my feelings and my blessing and my health and my happiness and my prosperity and my success and God's plan for me. While sound teaching is most concerned about God, his glory, his honor, his beauty, his attributes, his magnificence. It doesn't mean that we just give a understanding and a teaching each week on the doctrine of God. It does affect us. It does filter down to us. It calls us to live a life of faith, a life that honors him and loves him, serves him, submits to him, exalts him, proclaims him, worships him, and confesses him. That's what we're after. The Bible is applicable to us. But the application begins in us understanding and knowing who God is and how we respond to him. Sound teaching, it bears the fruit of love and humility over pride and sin. Look at verse number five. Let's look down to verse five through seven. We'll finish it up here. The aim of our charge, Paul says, is love. And where does love come from? He tells us love springs up from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, he didn't even name them by name. I mean, he names Hymenaeus and Alexander later on, but these certain persons, they're not even worth me mentioning. That's kind of what, certain persons, they've swerved from these and they've wandered away into vain discussions. Good grief. My grandfather told me one night, he said, Andy, I wrestled in the floor, like literally felt like I was wrestling on the floor with a God one night over how many angels can fit on the head of a pen. 
seriously. Seriously. Just vain discussions. And some of you, you've been in part of those vain discussions. Maybe not that one, hopefully not that one. Verse seven, they're desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Listen, verse number five gives us the end and the fruit of our theology. The end isn't, it doesn't rest in sound theology alone, but sound theology is the means. The ends is salvation and a knowledge of God and a relationship with Jesus. The fruit of sound teaching, the desired effect of sound preaching and teaching and sound study and us coming to understand the Bible, the the fruit of that, what did he say is the fruit of that? Not knowledge, not even hope, although it produces hope, not joy, although it produces joy, but what's the fruit ultimately? Love. The fruit is love. This isn't anything that's any different than what Jesus taught about his own command. I mean, what Paul's saying here is incongruent to the command of Christ. I mean, Jesus was the one as well that says, you know, what's what's the most important command? He says, all of the law hangs upon two commands. What are they? To love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and to love others as yourself. Jesus is teaching, Paul is saying the exact same thing here, that sound teaching, sound preaching, sound study, Sound theology, it drives us to love Jesus and love others more. And can I just say this? Because I think this is the parts for the, for the remainder four minutes that we have. These are the parts that are most applicable to us as a church. That if your theology drives you to anything other than love, if the fruit of your theology is pride and arrogance, then it's not the gospel. You're missing something in that. In fact, that's what's happening in the false teachers. See, it's opposed to what's happening to the false teachers. Notice what the false teachers have. The false teachers have a one-two knockout punch. It's pride and arrogance. Arrogance and ignorance. That's the one-two punch. Arrogance and ignorance. Look, Notice what it says. They're desiring to be teachers of the law. They're making confident assertions. That's pride. They want to be somebody. They want a title. They want people to look at them. They want a platform. And in their pride, they're making all of these, their desires is leading that to be somebody. And so they're making these confident assertions that are based upon speculations and not stewardship. But then also notice what Paul says. I love it. He lays them out without understanding either what they are saying. Arrogance and ignorance. Something we talk a lot about in my home. Arrogance and ignorance, arrogance, they desire to be teachers, ignorance, they don't even know what they're talking about, Paul says. Good grief. I've seen so many te- teachers that are like that. Let me just say this, I was like that. There was a time when I was like that. My pride got in the way. My desire to be somebody drove me, not love, but my desire to be somebody, to be Pastor Andy. I didn't know that I could survive in any other way. And the Lord disciplined me. Eight years of discipline in the sewers, working for my dad, withholding uh, being a pastor, disciplined my heart. And in that same time, the Lord taught me, gave me an education, allowed me to go to a solid Bible school, allowed me to, many of the things that we teach and talk about are from all of those things. They're so true. 
The Lord has crushed pride. He's given me an education. He's crushing ignorance in me every day. But look at what Paul says. That's opposed to love. That's opposed to humility. He says that it's a love that is, comes, that purifies our, or that cleanses our heart and purifies our conscience. See, that's, sound theology leads us to Jesus. It leads us to Jesus. Good biblical study leads us to Jesus. And when we get with Jesus, Jesus transforms us. Jesus changes us. Jesus cleanses our hearts. He purifies our conscience. So we're no longer like living sinful lives. That's what he's saying. He's washed our our hearts pure where our desires are good and our desires are right. Our consciences are pure and clean. What we want, things we desire, we're not doing this and studying this and wanting to be known so people can know us, but rather our end is so that we can love and honor God more so that we can love and serve our neighbors better and more and we can connect our lost neighbors to this Jesus that we are coming to love and to know. It's Jesus that leads us. It's a sincere and true faith in Christ. It's Jesus that is humbling us and Jesus that is transforming us and Jesus that is molding our hearts so that we love more and we love better. See, Paul establishes the church at Ephesus all the way back. We, looked at, uh, we didn't look at the, how he established it, but in the book of Acts, and I think in Acts maybe chapter 19, then we see in 20, he gives this warning to the leaders of Ephesus. Then he writes 1 Timothy to the head pastor, um, the kind of the first among equals, Timothy. He writes a letter to him. Then he writes a second letter to him. And then this is what we know from church history is Timothy sticks around and pastors the church at Ephesus for 33 years. So that's why I say I got 23 more years left here. I want to do like Timothy, stay 33 years and go out. And possibly I'll go out like Timothy goes out. Again, we don't know this from scripture. This isn't scripture. This is in some apocryphal literature, but just because it's in there and it's talking about church history, just because it isn't inspired doesn't mean it's not historically accurate. And what it says is is Timothy stayed in Ephesus. And then after 33 years of ministry in Ephesus, one day there were uh, people going to worship at the temple of Diana and Timothy went out to oppose them and to preach the gospel to them. And this mob attacked him and stoned him and put him to death. The Bible talks about the church at Ephesus one last time, and it's found in the book of Revelation. When John is exiled out on the, Patmos, uh, out on the island Patmos, the Holy Spirit visits him and gives him a message that he will write to seven churches. One of those seven churches is the church at Ephesus. I think there's a great word in this, church, in this letter to us. So if you have your Bibles, turn, take them out again for sermon number two. We take a little break, maybe get a snack. And some stuff, a little bit of stuff downstairs. No, I just need another minute. Revelation chapter two. Starting that first verse, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? That doesn't, the angel means just the messenger. That's what angels are, to the messenger. It could be to the person who's gonna take the letter to and deliver it from John to Ephesus. It could be the pastors. We don't really know exactly what he means, but it's not talking about an angel like you're picturing in with wings and all that. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? The words of him who holds the seven stars in the right hand, that's Jesus, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, that's the churches, that's Jesus. Look at verse number two. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil 
sinners in your midst. The apostate, you can't bear with them. But you have tested, look, those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. Like that's 1 Timothy chapter 1. There's false teachers, false apostles in your midst. And he's saying here, I know that you judged them and you found them to be false and you disciplined them. You've done away from them. You've swerved back on the road. I know you are enduring patiently and you're bearing up for my namesake and you have not grown weary. Verse four, but I have this against you. That you've abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Do you see what's happened in Ephesus? Do you see what's happened? They've grown lukewarm in love. They have a head knowledge of truth to the point where they can judge it, whether what the false teachers is true and right. They have this head knowledge, but it no longer affects their hearts. They've grown in apathy. They've grown cold. They lack compassion and empathy for others. And that's easy to do. Listen, rarely will affections just run cold. But what happens is affections oftentimes are displaced by new affections. Something else comes along the way. Like we can use a hundred things in our own lives where we've experienced this, right? We can see where we really, 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 really liked something until we saw that new thing, right? I'm preaching from an iPad Pro. I have an iPad, but a new thing came along. And the old thing just new affections for a new thing, an iPad Pro. And nevertheless, the same thing happens so true in our lives. Rarely do affections just grow cold but affections get displaced by new affections. And what happened here in the church of Ephesus is they fell out of love with Jesus, I believe, because they began to love theology more than they loved Jesus. Now listen, theology should lead us to Jesus, but their theology may have become like a philosophy, like any other philosophy. I'm not saying anything's wrong with theology. The problem's in our hearts. The problem is what we do with it. And ultimately, our theology, it should lead us to Jesus so that we can know Jesus, so that we can love Jesus. Here's where we are. May it be true of us. May a love for Christ fuel our fight for biblical truth. And may a love for Jesus fuel our fight to love one another. Point Community Church, may we never lose our fervor as the church for Jesus. May our passion for God's word not wane. May our zeal and our fervor in song as we worship Jesus, may it remain. May we stay united. May we stay low before the Lord, stay humble beneath him. May we continue to love him and to love others. We do love theology. We do love sound biblical teaching here because it honors Jesus and it leads us to worship him. And may it be always so of us. Let us pray. Jesus, we thank you that you've loved us enough to reveal your word and your will and your plan to us. May we steward it well. May we always take the posture of learners. Gosh, me included, Lord. So much responsibility here. 
Lord, I submit myself to you and to your word. I submit myself to my fellow elders. I submit myself to this congregation. Lord, make me a learner, make us learners, and may all of our learning, may it lead us to love, to love and to adore and to worship you, Jesus, and to love and to, and to really love genuine from genuine compassion. May it lead us to love others for your glory. I pray this, Lord. In your name we pray, amen.